Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. All witnesses, persons of interest, and or suspects are considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Three things cannot be long hidden. The sun, the moon, and the truth. This is Method and Madness, Episode 60, Murdered, Kristen O'Connell, Part 5. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. Los Angeles, a woman was explaining the concept of DNA to a large audience. Her goal was to make DNA as simple as ABC for a small portion of that audience. It was more than just an educational lesson on science. The woman was Dr. Robin Cotton, lab director of Cellmark Diagnostics, and her students were 12 men and women carefully selected to decide the fate of a man accused of a double homicide. It was May 1995, and Dr. Cotton was charismatic as she first told the jury how DNA works, what it's capable of, and what it's not. It was imperative that they understand the subject matter, the simple definitions, the basics. She kept it neutral. Prosecutor Marsha Clark questioned her expert witness and Dr. Cotton described the tests she personally conducted following the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. One expert witness said, quote, The technology, DNA technology, is evolving in a very incredible rate. It's, to me, it's much like computer technology. It's rapidly evolving. And what happens is the advances that come about in molecular biology and genetics are then transferred to the forensic level. And so, we're all evolving very rapidly. One piece of evidence in that particular case was the forensic testing of a sock found in the defendant's home. There was blood inside it. It was learned that the chance that the blood found on the defendant's sock could be from someone other than victim Nicole Brown, was one in 21 billion. Blood, not belonging to the victims, was found on a path near their bodies, and the chance that that came from anyone but the defendant was one in 170 million. The science was advanced enough in 1995 to lead to a conviction. Unfortunately, the jury may not have understood the science enough, and questionable investigative tactics raised reasonable doubt and overshadowed a lot of other evidence. 
Before this trial of the century, many people were familiar with DNA when Hollywood had a crack at it. In Jurassic Park, a video and B.D. Wong explained how the park was possible by cloning dinosaurs from the DNA of fossilized mosquitoes that fed on the blood of dinos. He made it sound so easy that you almost believed it could be done that way. But DNA was first identified by a physiological chemist, Friedrich Miescher, in 1869. And the beautiful thing about it is that with the exception of identical twins, all humans have a tiny percentage of their genome that makes them unique. And it's that teeny percentage which is used to identify a specific individual. A crime being committed before forensic technology was available doesn't necessarily exclude the possibility of connecting collected evidence to the killer. In 1986, the body of Cyrus Jefferson was found in a field in Lemon Grove, San Diego. In 2017, his case was officially solved by testing the DNA on a single glove that had been sitting in evidence for decades. When tested, there were two DNA profiles found, the victim and the suspect, Stacy Littleton. In 1998, 10-year-old Anna Palmer was heading to her home in Salt Lake City after a playdate. Her mother found her later on the porch. She'd been stabbed in the throat and sexually assaulted. The case went cold until a decade later when Anna's case was solved with the help of Sorensen Genomics, a Utah-based company that specialized in ancestry and forensics. Samples of Anna's fingernails were tested in the lab and led to the DNA profile of Matthew John Beck, who was 19 years old when Anna was killed. He was already incarcerated by this time for sodomizing a minor, and he pleaded guilty to Anna's murder. He's now serving life sentence without parole. Today, we're going to talk about the DNA in Kristen's case, evidence, mishandled evidence, and advocacy. Let's dive in. Losing a daughter and fighting for answers for all these years, Phyllis has a lot of what-ifs. Those what-ifs that accompany grief and on the worst days can be intense and keep you up at night. The other what-ifs, the ones that come up as a result of another year with no answers, those what-ifs can also be haunting. What if it hadn't rained that day and more evidence had been preserved? Impossible to know the answer, so let's look ahead. How successful can DNA be in this scenario? It doesn't have to be that a weapon is left behind or a bullet. Sometimes this tragically beautiful thing happens where a victim identifies their killer. We know that Kristen O'Connell put up a fight. That's a fact not just based on her character, as described by those who knew her, but by the crime scene, the cuts and abrasions observed on Kristen's body and that she had one broken fingernail. Despite the heavy rains in Ovid, there were key items collected. Fingernail scrapings and clippings are just some of those items. Traditionally, 
When testing evidence, investigators take DNA found at a crime scene and compare that DNA to the DNA of their suspect, if they have one. To try and match the crime scene DNA to a known criminal, they'll enter it into CODIS, the national database, to see if there's a match. And then there's genetic genealogy. What if New York State used it? Genetic genealogy combines DNA evidence and traditional genealogy to find biological connections between two people. On May 2, 1988, Diane Lynn Don was murdered in her San Diego home. For 34 years, her family didn't know who her attacker was until May 2020, when DNA taken from under her fingernails was used to find relatives of the killer. After a lot of work on family trees and people agreeing to supply their DNA, the police tracked down Warren Robertson, who by then was deceased. So how would they connect him to Diane? Through a lot of digging, they discovered that Robertson was Diane's neighbor at the time of her murder. Diane's son, who was only two when she was murdered, said that he was blown away that his mother's murder was finally solved and said, quote, to go from what little information you have to building a case like that was truly impressive. The answers that my family received is closure, and closure is everything, even after so much time had passed. New York State did use genetic genealogy to solve crimes in the past, but recently ended the practice of familial DNA. The one way it can be done is to use a private company like GEDmatch, Ancestry, or 23andMe, which are all used for forensic genetic genealogy. There's no doubt that Kristen's case has had more twists and turns than you can count, and the DNA in and around this case has its own chain that coils around itself. Let's get into it. More than 300 hairs were collected from Kristen and from the crime scene, and one hair, examined in 1995, was determined to be from an African-American. Investigators told journalists back then that they believed Kristen was attacked on the side of the road and pulled into the cornfield. There was a wrong place at the wrong time narrative. After this hair was tested, Police zeroed in on a man that was just 15 years old at the time of Kristen's murder, Gary Harris, a black male. In 95, Harris was serving a sentence at Rikers Island due to a parole violation, and then a court ordered that his DNA be tested in connection with Kristen's murder. He provided blood and hair samples. Gary Harris was an Ovid resident in August of 1985. He was also someone who got into trouble with the law from time to time. In 1988, he was sent to Seneca County Jail after being arraigned on a charge of first-degree sexual abuse. Ironically, the judge he met with was Ovid Justice James Vermeersh, Sr. But perhaps most notably, Harris had met Kristen O'Connell on that Wednesday evening before she took her walk. On August 14th, Jim Vermeersh and a few of his friends went swimming at a lake at Annie Guinan's grandparents' house. Annie was one of Jim's friends. It was late in the day after Kristen had called home to tell her mom 
she was cutting her trip short. And with the heat and humidity, a little cooling off in a lake sounded perfect. When it comes to truth, there's absolute truth, the reality, what actually happened. Then there's the versions told by people that were there. This is sometimes called my truth and your truth, our perception of the truth. Ever hear that saying, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of? When we tell a story, talk about an incident or memory, our telling could just be what our honest perception is, our view. The words we speak are a reflection of ourselves. Even in the telling of something factual or scientific, we tend to tell it through our perception, which is sometimes how half-truths or falsehoods end up coming out. What's seen as lies, however, can sometimes be the fallibility of the human memory or can be deception. The most common reason that people lie is a form of defense, self-protection, to avoid a consequence or a perceived one. There are at least three different versions of what happened on the afternoon of August 14th. Two different versions by two of Jim Vermeersh's friends and one version by Gary Harris himself. Here is version one. That late afternoon into the evening, David, the son of the owner of the Golden Buck, had apparently left his keys on the floor of his car. Now, David is in his friend Chris's car and they're headed to the lake to go swimming. Kristen was with them in the back seat. Jim and Annie drove separately and would meet up with them later. En route to the lake, David sees his own car being driven by a teen, Gary Harris. A second teen was in the passenger seat. David tells Chris to follow the car, and they get the kids to pull over. Once they were stopped, David confronted Gary Harris and tried to pull him out of the car, but didn't. He wasn't that bothered by the whole thing and let him off the hook. So instead, the two young thieves were invited down to the lake to go swimming. Jim later showed up on his motorcycle with Annie, and Kristen was sitting on the steps just watching the others swim. She had her bathing suit with her, but apparently didn't feel like swimming. When they were done at the lake, about 50 minutes later, David and Annie drove Gary Harris and his friend back to the Golden Buck, where they had asked to be dropped off. David didn't report the car stolen until the next day. Version 2 is as follows. David, Chris, and Kristen were sitting parked at the lake when David's car drove by. They flagged Gary Harris down, and David was very angry, and Gary apologetic. Next, David told the two kids to get in the backseat of his car, and he drove them back to the Golden Buck and basically said, I won't call the police, but tomorrow you have to clean my car. In this version, Gary Harris and his friend did not go swimming at the lake, and Kristen waded in the water up to her knees because she didn't have a bathing suit. They left the lake around 9 p.m. Version 3. Gary and his friend were not invited to go swimming, nor were they dropped off immediately at the buck. They were brought down to the lake and threatened to be held under the water to, quote, make them pay for taking David's car for a joyride. Kristen, who never passed up an opportunity to defend someone, intervened and had Gary sit with her on the steps, out of harm's way, while the others swam. Now fast forward ten years later, Gary Harris is being questioned about Kristen's murder because of the hair found on her body. 
He gives his DNA and denies ever knowing or having met Kristen, which was suspicious considering investigators already knew about their interaction. But Gary wasn't arrested in 1995 because it turned out that the African-American hair found on Kristen's body actually belonged to the person that occupied the body bag right before Kristen's body was in it. Still, Gary Harris was adamant that he never met Kristen O'Connell and didn't understand why police thought he was lying. It wasn't until years later that it was put together. He remembered the girl that sat with him at the lake that day. He had no idea that she was Kristen O'Connell. Similar to the what-ifs, for a grieving family fighting for justice, there's also the if-onlys. If only that forensic scientist had been qualified. In 2010, the Office of the New York Inspector General reached out to Phyllis O'Connell to let her know there may have been some mishandling of evidence in Kristen's case. According to a 2008 New York Times article, forensic scientist Gary Veter had worked for over 30 years with the state police crime lab, analyzing trace evidence, fibers, physical material, and impressions. An audit conducted by the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors found that he had skipped a step in a two-step part of the process of fiber analysis. Gary had attributed this to poor training and a lack of supervision. After Gary informed his supervisor, an inquiry was launched. On May 23rd of 2008, it was reported that Gary Veter had died by suicide at his home. He was 58. He left behind several notes addressed to his family and to his lawyer. But on the day that Gary's widow discovered the notes, an officer searching the Veter home confiscated the items before any family member had a chance to read them. Though the contents weren't disclosed at the time, they got leaked, and it was indicated that Gary's death was a result of workplace stress and depression stemming from the inquiry into his work. After his death, the New York State Police decided a review of Gary's work was needed on all of his testing for the previous decade and beyond, as there were suspicions he'd falsified dozens of records for at least 15 years. According to an article in Times Union, quote, after a review from the Inspector General's office, which was asked to investigate the matter by the state police and the State Commission on Forensic Science, said problems were found in 29% of Veter's 322 cases. As a result, over 40 district attorney's offices had to be notified that there may have been mishandling of evidence leading to compromised investigations. The superintendent of the state police at the time, Harry Corbett, said, quote, We are satisfied that there were no wrongful convictions nor any miscarriages of justice. The violations reflect an alarming departure from the high standards we expect from every employee of the state police crime laboratory system. Despite this statement, I found at least one criminal case that was affected by the work of Gary Veter. He had worked on evidence in the case of Catherine Sieber 
who was standing accused of second-degree murder in 2001. The victim was her step-grandmother, Ruth Witter, who was killed during a robbery gone wrong. Catherine had pled guilty and was serving a sentence of 20 years to life, but she appealed in 2011 after it was discovered that Gary Veter had conducted some of the tests. Her appeal worked, and the guilty plea and conviction were tossed out by a judge. After the appeal, Catherine was granted a new trial and took an Alford plea and pled guilty to first-degree manslaughter while also declaring her innocence. She was paroled in 2012. She later died in 2013 when she was murdered in her home by a man she was dating. It was also discovered that the work Gary Veter was conducting was at times approved by his supervisor and trainer. While the circumstances surrounding Veter's death is devastating and troubling for the family he left behind, the question that comes to mind is, how is quality assurance in a crime lab overlooked in such a detrimental way? Many businesses are successful because of their adherence to certain standards and regulations to ensure that work is being performed to the standards that they're compliant. This protects the company and the customer. The work performed in the lab by Gary Veter was described as, quote, shoddy, something that should have been caught at the very least by a supervisor and at most by an auditor much earlier on. Here is Phyllis O'Connell. They do have things that, that can be tested. And the other thing in uh, the state of New York, you've got the health department and it's a very powerful organization and they kind of rule the, what they determined should be done. And they have rules and regulations. A lab has to be certified in the state of New York in order to accept anything that you might have that you want tested. Now, they also stipulate that if their own police lab can do this type of testing, it has to go there first. Well, this was, was terrible. It was terrible for us because the fellow that actually tested Kristen's clothing in the beginning consumed some of it in the testing. Now this man, and I mean, you can look all this up. This is, it's out there. It's in the New York Times. And they did a probe on the New York State Police Lab as to how efficient they were and what they were doing. And they came to find out that this man that was doing the testing didn't know what he was doing. And he claimed that they, they weren't trained properly. He complained about it, but to no avail, they didn't make changes. And there's a lot of speculation on my part as to what really happened there. So obviously we didn't get any DNA from somebody who didn't know what he was doing. So you've got that police lab that's sitting there and they built it, you know, it's a state of the art supposedly, but if you don't have the state of the art people running it and, and working there, what good is it? Let's take a break.
Are you a true crime advocate, passionate about uncovering the truth and bringing justice to victims? You can immerse yourself in an unforgettable experience at this year's True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival, which takes place in Austin, Texas, August 25th to 27th, 2023. I attended last year, and let me tell you, this is a fantastic event. It features panel discussions, workshops, and live podcasts with a special focus on ethics and advocacy in the true crime sphere. And if the paranormal and spooky are your thing, you'll get plenty of that too. To get tickets, go to truecrimepodcastfestival.com and join us in Austin. Don't miss out on the chance to connect with other advocates and take your passion for true crime and the paranormal to the next level. Use the code METHOD for 15% off your ticket and spend the weekend with some very special guests. Julie Murray, sister of missing woman Maura Murray, Tara Newell of the Dirty John series, and Collier Landry. That's truecrimepodcastfestival.com. We hope to see you there. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We've gotten to know Kristen, and it's safe to say from the outpouring of support I've received, all the emails, direct messages, that people have really grown to care about her and her family. I hope you've gotten a sense of who Kristen was and the impact she had on the people she left behind. I want this episode to inspire you to continue fighting for Kristen today, tomorrow, and always until we've reached an appropriate conclusion. I don't like to say that justice is closure, because I think that for many family members or survivors of violence, there never really is closure, but there can be a resolution. The tricky path toward justice often feels out of our control, and in many ways, it is. The ones suffering the most are relying on the powers that be, law enforcement or a carefully selected group of 12 of our peers, it can feel like you're sitting, frozen in time, while the world flies by. Everything is on hold while you search for the truth. In the 1988 Dutch film The Vanishing, as well as its 1993 American remake, a young couple is on vacation, traveling by car, and they stop at a service station. The woman, in both versions of the film, goes inside the store to buy a few things and never returns to the car. Her boyfriend waits outside, finally growing impatient and searches for her, but she's nowhere in or around the station. After the cops are called and all the reports written, the boyfriend spends the next three years obsessed with figuring out what happened to her. He utilizes the media and makes it clear that law enforcement has no interest in partnering with him. They think he's out of his mind. 
And in a way, he is. His intense desire to know overcomes any need to move on as his life becomes all-consuming in his plight towards answers. When his girlfriend's abductor finally reaches out to him personally, he must decide if the danger of partnering with this person is worth knowing. It's a very human approach to a choose-your-own-adventure. Would you rather go on not knowing the rest of your life or take a huge risk without any guarantee of a resolution? Spoiler alert, but in both versions, the man does end up finding out what happened to his girlfriend, and it's far darker than he imagined. The American version has at least some semblance of a happy ending in a predictable Hollywood fashion, but it's this obsession that has such humanity to it. He's not obsessed with getting justice, but with knowing. We're going to explore this more in the next episode, how violent crime affects a family, not just with their grief, which is immeasurable, but in every aspect of their life going forward. I've worked with families that are fighting for justice for two years, five years. The O'Connell family, well, they're going on 38 years. It's hardly even fathomable. How did it get to this point? We've talked a lot about what's been uncovered over the years by investigators and private investigators. Why was there such an effort to look outside of Ovid to find Kristen's killer? Why are there so many versions of seemingly innocuous details? We're not done with that discussion, but for today, where exactly does the case stand and what's going on with the DNA? Many of you have been asking. Let's hear the official statements the New York State Police provided to me. I reached out to the lead investigator in the case, Peter McCadden, with the New York State Police. He was quick to respond and agreed to speak with me. He really couldn't comment on anything specific, not on evidence being processed. I did mention that there seemed to be a perception by many that the state police are preventing DNA from being tested. McCadden said that nothing is holding labs back from being tested. He added that he has put his heart and soul into the case. The official statement provided to me by Trooper Mark O'Donnell was, quote, the state police has been actively investigating the murder of Kristen O'Connell from the tragic day she was discovered. The term cold case is used. However, the case is actively worked on by investigators of the Troop E Violent Crime Investigative Team. Here again is Phyllis O'Connell. We've got stuff that needs to be tested. The state police, people have offered to help them. No, they, they can't work with anybody unless they're law enforcement. They won't share anything with anybody unless they're law enforcement. And, you know, it's an active case, but we only get to work on it when we are busy with other cases that are current. So consequently, you get shoved to the side. And we're not the only case that this is going on and happening to. I mean, over the years, you can well imagine how many other people you know, they just probably don't have the tenacity that I do. <laughs> so they don't know what to do or how to stay with it. Recently, I asked the New York State Police for an update on the DNA testing specifically. Here is that statement. Through the years, DNA extraction and testing has been completed by the New York State Police Lab, the FBI Lab, 
the Suffolk County Lab, the NYC Office of the Chief Medical Examiner Lab, and the Eichelin Boom Lab, just to name a few. To say that we are not completing DNA testing is inaccurate. We continue to seek partner labs that utilize the latest technology while staying within the confines of the New York State Department of Health. In 2021, documentarian Christopher Pavlik, working with Phyllis O'Connell, offered to work with the state police and to have a state-of-the-art forensic lab test evidence. There was also an offer to have an accredited cold case team donate their time. This team is led by a former manager of the FBI's Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. The New York State Police declined this offer and subsequent pleas to District Attorney Mark Sinkowitz were also dismissed. So DNA could solve this case, if only it all gets tested. Now, to conclude today's episode, I want to introduce you to my brilliant friend, an amazing advocate, who will talk about what she's doing to help Kristen's case. Next week, we'll hear from another member of Kristen's family, and we're going to go over the entire timeline of events and all of the discrepancies. Hi, my name is Jolyn Rice. I actually started Cold Case Digital Advocacy about a year and a half ago. And the goal at that time was really to, to bring more awareness to unsolved cold cases and to really support families who wanted to bring more awareness to their cases. And that initially started as sort of an effort to bring digital resources to the table, helping with change.org petitions or helping with GoFundMe um, proposals. We also did a lot of work with pitching stories to podcasters like you, as well as other earned media sources to try to just bring more awareness, not only just bringing in more tips around the case, which is always welcomed, but just to bring more awareness to where the case was at that time. JoLynn was introduced to Kristen's case, she says, organically. Her husband's hometown is Ovid, and she was living there at the time. I became aware of the case because we were, you know, coming home from a store and I saw a sign that said something about this unsolved murder. And I found it intriguing, being that it was a very small town that we lived in, a farming town, 600 people met the most um, at that time. And I grew up about an hour away. So, you know, I'd never heard of the case. So the fact that this case was active, unsolved, and, you know, nobody was talking about it that in my circles or, or um, in, you know, just generally in the town made me intrigued. I was, it was a mystery. So it initially started for me as trying to find out more about the case and just seeing is there something that I could do to help the family and help the mom. And when I was able to connect with her and through her Facebook groups that she started, it was clear that she was in a position at that time that she needed more help. There's no guidebook in how to navigate being a survivor or how to take on the emotional and practical work of being the family member of a victim. Long hours are spent researching or trying to reach the people in authoritative positions. JoLynn saw this in Phyllis O'Connell. She needed some help from people who lived locally because she wasn't being communicated with from law enforcement. She was asking questions, she wasn't getting answers, and she felt like this case had become really cold, even more colder than it already was. And she wanted communication and she wanted to know where the case was. And she'd had a previously positive relationship with law enforcement and it had started to feel like it had changed. 
So she was asking people to, you know, call the DA. He hasn't, he's not returning my phone call. Can, you know, she wanted a groundswell of support around this particular initiative. And I felt like my skills and background in advocacy and experience in marketing kind of worked well to try to help and bring a little more awareness. And so after talking with her and getting to know her, understanding the case a little bit better, and then just learning about Kristen, I really felt like there was something I needed to do. And this is what, you know, what started Cold Case Digital Advocacy. JoLynn didn't set out to create any formal framework or methodology around advocacy, but as she wrote blog posts and began connecting with families, she saw that there was a need, that families were struggling to find resources or even know their rights. Phyllis O'Connell was sharing everything she was learning with law enforcement, and there was a positive relationship there. But Phyllis began to feel like something had changed. The district attorney wouldn't return her calls. How do you get people to come together and help? Sort of how cold case digital advocacy became what it was at that time. And, you know, over the last year, what, what a lot of my work has been is just talking with families about where they are in the case and where do they want to go and what kind of attention, media attention or call to action do we need to push so that we can support their efforts um, in getting the case solved. And every family is different in what they need, but it's still a universal theme of, not, you know, I'm not getting heard. No one's listening to my needs. I don't know where to go. And I'm just being treated as if I'm a pest. And that resonated with me so much in the work that I've done in the past that I felt like I could help be that voice and help bring those stories a little bit more to the forefront so that we could talk about those cases and not just what's happening, isn't, what isn't happening, but what could happen. So where is that gap? We've got a lot of cold cases. There's obviously a resource issue in the state of New York. We have over 30,000 unsolved homicide cases. That's a lot of perpetrators. That's a lot of people that are still out there in our communities. And we know law enforcement wants more resources and wants to do a good job. We know that. But there are times where that's in direct conflict with the fact that they have you know, so many current cases that they have to solve. So that's sort of how I came to be <laughs> as an as a advocacy organization. JoLynn got her degree in sociology and a graduate degree in psychology before working with families and children who were victims of domestic violence. She ran a program to reduce recidivism. Through her work, she began creating tools for families, and at the core of what she did was creating resources that were victim-centric. She saw how people were empowered to speak up and out for themselves and for their loved ones. Working with Phyllis O'Connell, JoLynn was able to get Kristen's case more exposure, getting it onto blogs, websites. Dateline even featured it in an article as a cold case spotlight. From there, JoLynn worked with some podcasts to get Kristen's story out to the masses. This podcast even generated several tips that have been forwarded over to the state police. The petition that's on change.org is almost at 5,000 signatures and is an effort to get the DNA in Kristen's case tested. You've heard me mention this at the end of every episode. Overall, it starts with a conversation, getting people talking, talking about Kristen, her case, keeping that awareness and conversation going. These families often feel like they're fighting alone and they feel as if it's taken over their life and in many ways it has. You know, So I often think about what would their life be like, not just obviously because they'd lost a loved one that if they hadn't lost, you know, all these, you know, their whole life would be different. 
But if this case had been solved and if there was some answer 30 years ago, 40 years ago, would her father have passed away prematurely? Would her mother's life be totally sort of uh, understandably about this case so much so that it it pushes out almost everything else, you know? And it's not a judgment, but it's an observation that it's just, this isn't a case to them. This is their life. This is their child's life. This is their future that they never had. And this is hopefully something that they can get through and get over, even if they don't get an answer, but we should certainly be able to push to and use every resource available and know that we knocked on every door, we knocked down every wall, we did everything we could and law enforcement did everything they could to solve it. And, and, and it's tragic when that happens and you still don't have an answer, but there, there are situations where we can push more and we can ask for more. And the families need more rights and they need more say in how these cases are handled and what information they're allowed to have. And then there's Kristen's law. There was a federal bill passed recently that would help families with victims' rights. And a big part of it was getting outside eyes on cases that need DNA testing. Essentially, what Kristen's law would do is provide families the ability to have more rights over their loved ones' cases. It would help bring the families in, include them more, have them be a part of the discussion, and importantly, Kristen's law would make it possible for a case to be classified as cold. Kristen's case is still considered active, which limits what can be done outside of the New York State Police. It limits information sharing, and it means families have to fight just to get a piece of evidence tested. You can sign our petition, and you can also use our uh, pre-written email letter, and you can send that to a huge list that we have. We'll provide for you to senators so that we can try to, like, get the support that we need. Visit coldcaseadvocacy.com for more information and check the show notes here, too. To get more information about Kristen's case, visit my friends at uncovered.com and make sure to join the Facebook group for updates, Justice for Kristen O'Connell. A lot of people helped make this episode and miniseries possible. Thank you to Courtney Fenner, Jolyn Rice, Christopher Pavlik, Noel Hotchkiss, Preston Felton, the anonymous residents of Ovid, Barbara Bear, Shannon Harris, Phil Riedel, and of course, Phyllis O'Connell. Thank you for listening to this episode of Method and Madness. If you haven't already, Please leave a rating or review, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. To connect, I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. To chat, suggest a case, or discuss the episode, reach out to me at MethodAndMadnessPod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. Sound editing is by Moen Spo. That's it for this week. Until next time, take care of yourself. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.